18, verses 1 through 5. Psalm chapter 15, beginning in verse 1. O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell in your holy hill? He who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart, who does not slander with his tongue and does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend, in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord, who swears to his own hurt and does not change, who does not put out his money at interest and does not take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things shall never be moved. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. My name is Bill Farley. If you don't know me, I'm the father of Pastor Dave and the founding pastor of GCF back in 2002 with my lovely wife, Judy. Um, it's really good to be here this morning. I'm filling in for the pastors who are on vacation. Let's open with prayer. I know we've prayed a lot already, but I, w I want us to humble ourselves before the Lord and, and confess our need of His presence. Father, this morning we turn to you and confess our great need. We are slow to hear. Our hearts are often dull. And so, Father, I pray that you would help us that you would come by the power of your Holy Spirit uh, and open our hearts to your word. Bring us under conviction for sin. Lord, increase our faith. Father, amplify our need for your son, Jesus. Lord, comfort us and encourage us. Father, I can't do any of these things. Only you can do these things. So, Father, I confess this to you. My brothers and sisters confess it to you. We look to you this morning as a, the great provider for the church. We look in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. I'd like to start by reading another short text of Scripture. Would you please turn to Psalm 24, verse 2, please? Psalm 24, verse 2. There's three times in, in the Bible where this question is asked that Psalm 15 asks this morning, and then there's a response. The second one is in Psalm 24, which we'll study next summer. And the other one is in Isaiah 33, which we'll come to in a few minutes in the sermon. So Psalm 24, verse 3. And uh, John read at the beginning, the last, verse 7 through 10. We're going to read verse 3 through 6. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand at his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false, and does not swear deceitfully. He will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. I keep talking about threes. I spoke at the Central Campus last week. The context of Psalm 14 is repeated three times in Scripture. And this question is asked and answered three times in Scripture, Psalm uh, 15, Psalm 24, and Isaiah 33. We'll come to Isaiah 33 later. But it's asking a universal question that concerns everyone, especially the dying. Who does God accept? Who gets into heaven? 
The modern world answers that question several ways. The first answer is, well, there is no afterlife, there is no heaven, this is, question is irrelevant. But the second answer is the answer that most people would adhere to. There is a heaven, but God is easy. Everyone except Hitler, Stalin, and Mao, and maybe Castro are going to get into heaven. The third answer is some form of salvation by works. Only some get into heaven. They are the good people, the moral top half of society. God grades on the curve, and everyone average or above average gets in. Muhammad Ali is a good example. He's now dead. He died of Parkinson's disease. Right before he died, uh, Reader's Digest magazine interviewed him, and and they asked him this question. And he said, one day God is going to judge us. He was a Muslim. One day God is going to judge us. If the bad outweighs the good, you go to hell. If the good outweighs the bad, you go to heaven. That reminds me of being in Catholic grade school. I was raised Roman Catholic, and I went to Catholic grade school in the 1950s. And I remember the nun, we taught by nuns, drawing a big circle on the blackboard like this, and then taking her chalk and making marks all over that circle. That circle, she said, is your soul. And all these marks are sins. And she put little marks all over the blackboard in the circle. If there's more marks in the circle, then open space, you go to hell. If there's fewer marks in the circle than unmarked areas, you go to heaven. Pretty similar to Muslim, right? Now, the good news is many Catholics, even though the Roman Catholic believe in justification by faith alone, but most Catholics believe in some form of works salvation. And that's the question that this psalm asks. This psalm divides into two movements. The first is the question, whom does God accept? The second movement is the answer, and then we're going to make a third point, which is we're going to pause for a few words of application at the end. So the question, the answer, and application. So the question is in verse 1. Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? That's the question. When David wrote this psalm, the temple in Jerusalem did not yet exist. Instead, God dwelt in a tent or tabernacle, the one that he instructed Moses to build in the wilderness several centuries before this. God's tabernacle or tent was now on Mount Zion. Zion was a small hill on the northern edge of the city of Jerusalem. And Jerusalem was called the city of God because the tent was there and God's presence was in the tent or the tabernacle. The tabernacle divided into two rooms. There was the holy place, and then there was the most holy place. God dwelt above the Ark of the Covenant in the Holy of Holies, or the most holy place. He appeared there as an intense flame of fire over the Ark. Okay, so imagine this tent with two rooms. You, you walked into the outer room, which is where the priest could go, and on the right-hand side as you walked in, there was a table with bread on it, which represented which was telling us that God is the bread of life. On the left-hand side was a candelabra with a seven-stick candelabra, which was lit. The only light in this room was from this candelabra. There were no windows. And at the end of the room was was called the altar of incense. There was a small altar where the priest would burn incense to God. And then there was a veil. And the veil separated the holy place from the most holy place. 
The most holy place was a cube. It was as high as it was, wide and long. And in the most holy place was only one thing, the Ark of the Covenant. It was a box the size of a trunk, covered inside and outside with gold, with two cherubims engraved over the lid of the ark so that they were like this in worship, uh, looking over the top of this ark. And between those two cherubims where this flame of fire existed, which represented God's glory. And so we prayed this morning about glorifying God and representing God's glory. Okay, God is holy. So that's what David's talking about when he's saying, who shall, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? He has a mind, the tabernacle, the tent, and this is what it looks like. And only one person could go into that, the most holy place, uh, and, and that only one time per year, and that was the high priest. And there he would, he would uh, sprinkle blood on the Ark of the Covenant for the forgiveness of the people's sins. The important point about the, the tabernacle or tent is that God is holy, and His holiness is absolute. We have no way to understand God's holiness. It's totally beyond us. It cannot be approached by anyone corrupted by sin. That is all of us, no exceptions. We read last week Psalm 14 and studied Psalm 14, which made that clear twice. Psalm 14 tells us, no one is good. And then the second time it adds, not even one. That's a universal statement. That means from God's perspective, no one is holy in and of themselves. No one. And that is why the question in verse 1 is so important. Who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? A couple hundred years later, the prophet Isaiah asked the same question, but with different words. The sinner's And this is in Isaiah 33, verse 14, 15, and 16. The sinners in Zion are afraid. Trembling has seized the godless. Who among us can dwell with the consuming fire? Who among us can dwell with the everlasting burnings? Now, maybe you're saying, hold it, Bill, that's Old Testament. No, the New Testament, Hebrews, our God is a consuming fire. Would you say that with me? Our God is a consuming fire. Verse 15. So there's the question. Here's the answer. He who walks righteously and speaks uprightly, who despises the gain of oppressions, who shakes his hands lest they hold a bribe, who stops his ears from hearing of bloodshed and shuts his eyes from looking on evil, he will dwell on the heights. His place of defense will be the fortresses of rocks. His bread will be given him. His water will be sure. So we have this question asked and answered three times in Scripture. It's it's asked a little bit differently each time, and it's answered a little bit differently each time. The idea is, who can dwell with God? Only the virtuous, only the holy, only the blameless, only the person that is pure of heart. And um, that's the problem. Isaiah says that this God is a consuming fire, and that's why the question is so important. Because God is holy, Isaiah describes him as a consuming fire. The Bible contains many examples of sinful humans colliding with God's utter and absolute holiness. When God came down on Mount Sinai to give the Ten Commandments to the Jews, 
He told them that no one could go up the mountain or even touch the mountain lest they die. Why was that? Because God's presence, this fire, this Shekinah glory was on top of the mountain, and that made the mountain holy. And if anyone who was unholy, which was all of us, would touch the mountain, they would instantly die. Forty days later, after the sin with the golden calf, Moses asked to see God's glory, and here's how God responded. No one can see me and live. I'm so holy, I'm so beyond you, so utterly beyond you that no one can perceive me with their naked eyes and survive it. A year later, God's presence filled the completed tabernacle, but the Jews, including Moses, all ran in the opposite direction. Why was that? Because they sensed the holiness of God, and when they came in contact with the holiness of God, they sensed how utterly foreign and different they were from God who was absolutely holy, and they fled in the opposite direction. Several days later, fire came out from God's presence and struck down Aaron's two sons, Nadab and Abihu. What was their sin? They offered strange fire, Leviticus 10. In other words, they offered a sacrifice to God that was not in accordance with God's instructions. And boom, fire came out from the, from the Shekinah cloud of glory where this fire dwelt, and boom, zapped those boys. Think of the Raiders of the Lost Ark, the last 15 minutes of the movie, okay? Korah, Dathan, and Abiram rebelled against Moses' leadership a few years later. How did God respond? The earth opened up and swallowed both they, their wives, and their children alive, Numbers 16. Later, the Jews occupied the Promised Land. The Jews moved the Ark of God on a cart away from the Philistines. When the oxen stumbled, one of the men that was next to the, the cart reached out to take the Ark and keep it from falling off the cart, but, but he wasn't a priest. And only the priest could handle or touch the Ark, and as soon as he touched it, he was struck dead by God, because God is holy, and the things of God are holy, and Yuza, even though he was very sincere, was unholy and had violated God's commandment. For these reasons and more, the New Testament reminds us in 1 Timothy chapter 6 that God is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, who dwells in unapproachable light, who no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. And so David's question in verse 1 is appropriate. Who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? And when we think of that question in, con in the context of Psalm 14 that we read last and studied last week, the question becomes even more pertinent. Dr. Mark Ward restates the question in verse 1 this way. Who enjoys true fellowship with God under his covenant blessings. Who is on a path to Eden restored? Eden restored is what the tabernacle represented and what the temple represented and what the world someday is going to be. Who will receive God's promised inheritance? Who will be included in that final vision of which the physical temple is an echo, a glimpse, and a shadow? So this psalm is most pertinent to us. We face the same question today. Who is acceptable to God? Who will he let into heaven to experience 
eternal joy and eternal glory? And the answer is in verse chapter verse 2 through 5. Let's read it again. We can't get enough of Scripture. He who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart, who does not slander with his tongue and does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend, in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord, who swears to his own hurt and does not change, who does not put out his money at interest and does not take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things shall never be moved. So let's pause and look at these verses with just a little bit more specificity. They contain six exhortations to godly virtue. And as you saw, uh, Psalm 24 has a little bit different list. Isaiah 33 has a little bit different list. They all, well, they're all summed up in the same general idea. It's the holy, the righteous, the godly that can enter God's presence. But Romans chapter 3 tells us none are righteous, no, not one. Okay? Number one, he who walks blamelessly and does what is right is the first thing David mentions here. The list begins with walking. Walking is a metaphor for the entire conduct of one's life. Our walk is how we live from conversion to death. Think of Proverbs chapter 4, which reads, the path of the righteous, notice it's a path, it's something where I'm walking down. The path of the righteous is like the light of dawn, which shines brighter and brighter until day, full day, I'm sorry. The way of the wicked, though, is deep darkness. They do not know over what they stumble. Now, the word walking is not used there, but the, that's the idea. Life is pictured as me walking down a path. And as I'm walking that path, my life, my life is like uh, the light of dawn. It's like the sun coming up in the morning, and it's getting brighter and brighter and brighter. In other words, I'm growing and becoming more and more and more like Christ. That's the idea. It's a walk. Psalm 15 says the man who dwells with God walks blamelessly. He walks with God. In the Old Testament in Genesis 5, we're told that Enoch walked with God and was not. In other words, God took him without death, okay? There's only two people in Genesis that are described as walking with God, Enoch, and then in Genesis 6, it says that Noah walked with God. To walk with God means I'm walking in faith and repentance. Was Noah blameless in this sense of being perfect? No. But Noah had the kind of faith that's saving faith, and he expressed that with a life of repentance. He spent the next hundred years building an ark, preaching the gospel, and not one person was converted, even though he preached to multitudes. We're told that in the New Testament. How do we know no one was converted? Because the only people on the ark with him were his wife and his uh, three sons and their wives. Okay, seven other people plus Noah. So here was a man who was faithful, who walked in perseverance with God, who walked in, who was blameless. So he walks blamelessly. Number two, he speaks truth in his heart. He does not slander with his tongue and does no evil to his neighbor. This means no gossip, no slander, no condescending speech, looking down on people, no impatient speech, no complaining. You remember God struck down 18,000 Jews in the wilderness for complaining? Complaining? 
Are you kidding me? Come on, God, it wasn't adultery, it wasn't murder, it wasn't drug addiction, it wasn't alcoholism. No, complaining. That's how serious God takes complaining. No boasting. Remember, Proverbs tells us that life and death are in the power of the tongue. Speech is second on this list because speech is the first fruit of the heart. Our speech is a red blinking neon sign saying, this is the content of my heart. It comes out and it, and it expresses who we really are deep down inside. How do I know that? Well, Jesus said, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good. And the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. I, I don't like this verse. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Jesus. Third, not only does he walk blamelessly and speak truth in his heart, but he despises the vile person, but honors those who fear the Lord. The vile person is the opposite of the person who fears God in this text, and fearing God is not optional. What does it mean to fear God? The believer who fears God takes God very seriously. He is consciously, or she, is consciously aware that God is always watching me, and that God is utterly sovereign over everything in my life, and that therefore I need to obey Him and please Him, because pleasing Him and obeying Him is the gateway to life's blessings, okay? I know if you're not disciplining your children, you don't fear God. I know, husbands, if you're not trying to love your wife as Christ loved the church, you don't fear God. And I know, wives, if you're not trying, at least, to submit to your husband and support him and encourage him, that you don't fear God. Uh, you don't take God seriously. Um, you, um, you don't take God seriously. God, there's no gravitas between you and God. Gravity, weight. God is not weighty in your life, because the fear of God always leads to obedience, because we fear Him. So this man despises what God despises, the man who fears God, and he honors what God honors. And this means that his emotions are aligned with God's emotions. His values parallel God's values. He hates what God hates, and he loves what God hates what God loves, I'm sorry. And brothers and sisters, the only hate crime is to not hate what God hates, to love something that God actually hates. Because he is a fellow sinner, this person doesn't look down on sinners, but he hates evil in all its forms. He starts by hating the evil in his own heart, not the evil in other people's hearts, okay? If you hate the evil in other people's hearts, you don't hate the evil in your own heart, that means you're a massive hypocrite and you don't understand yourself or know yourself very well. This person also loves virtue in all its forms, and that means he's different from the world because the world does not hate what God hates, and the world does not love what God loves. The world thinks sex is malleable. God hates that attitude. Our sexuality is assigned by God. 
it is fixed. We can change our external genitals, but our basic nature cannot be changed. We can take hormone treatments, but it doesn't make any difference. So if I'm a male, I, every cell in my body is X and Y. And if I'm a female, every cell is XX. The world approves of same-sex marriage. God hates same-sex marriage. Do you hate same-sex marriage? I don't mean you hate people that engage in same-sex marriage. I say you hate the activity. The world approves of grievance studies, stirring up hatred between groups. Men hating women and women hating men, blacks and whites against each other, CRT. Fat versus skinny, there's fat studies now down at the local colleges. And fat studies are, the whole thing is to stir up conflict between skinny people and fat people. Rich versus poor, heterosexual versus homosexual. God hates those who sow discord between brothers. There are six things the Lord hates, Proverbs chapter six. Seven, they're an abomination to him. That's a strong word, abomination. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood. Think abortion. A heart that devises wicked plans. Feet that make haste to run to evil. A false witness who breathes out lies. And one who sows discord amongst brothers. Right now our whole culture is being torn apart by grievance studies. We're... we're E pluribus unum is our motto, out of many, one, but we're becoming out of one, many. And God hates this, and we should hate it. And if we hate it, we'll try to abolish grievance studies programs at all of our universities, okay? That's just one little application here. The world thinks sex is just another recreational activity to be enjoyed with whomever, whenever. God hates that attitude. God loves sex within marriage. He hates sex outside of marriage. The world loves self-promotion and selfish ambition. God hates self-promotion. God loves humility. God loves people that take the low place. God loves the person who takes the lowest seat. God loves people that take the low road in life. Oh, that's so countercultural, isn't it? I mean, it's counter to our own fleshly nature, let alone the world. So here's the point, the person that God accepts thinks like God, he loves what God loves, he hates what God hates, how does he learn to think this way? He immerses himself or herself in God's Word. And then his emotions and his thought life begin to parallel God's. So if you're, if you're struggling with this this morning, hate's a strong word. If you're struggling with this this morning, then probably the problem is you just don't read the Bible very much. Your mind is not, you spend, the average American spends five hours a day in front of the TV set. I hope that's not us. It might be. That's okay if you spend an hour a day in God's Word. But I'd be willing to bet if you're spending five hours a day in front of the TV, you're spending zero time in God's Word, okay? The TV is here today and gone tomorrow. God's Word is going to affect you for the next hundred million years. God's Word is infinitely more important than entertainment. Now, I watch TV. There's nothing wrong with TV in and of itself. And just, there's some good things on TV. I'm just saying that I'm, I'm exhorting you to prioritize God's Word. So in summary, the man that, that God approves walks righteously, speaks righteously, and loves what God loves 
and hates what God hates. And fourthly, he swears to his own hurt and does not change. This means he keeps his commitments even when they become costly. Think of your wedding vows. We promise in our wedding vows to love in season and out of season, whether in sickness and in health and poverty and wealth. When our spouse is pleasant to be around, when they smell good, when they smell bad, when they look nice, when they look bad, when they're fun to be with, when they're not fun to be with, okay? We swear to our own hurt. That means later when it's uncomfortable to continue keeping that commitment, we keep it anyway, and we don't change. Uh, my uncle Gail, I remember as a child, and I've shared this story before, when I was about 10 years of age, I remember going to visit just my father's older brother. He married his high school sweetheart. So he was about 40 when I'm describing this story. He'd been married about 15 years, maybe 20. And I walk into the living room, and there's my aunt, his wife, in a wheelchair. And her head is half shaved. She's, her head is like this, and she's drooling compulsively. She can't walk. She can't get out of the wheelchair. Well, she had a brain tumor. My uncle, who was not a Christian, but because he was raised in the old school, where your word is your bond, was faithful to her and cared for her for five, six, seven years until she died. That's what, what this text means. We swear to our own hurt, and we do not change. How about the GCF membership agreement? There's a little clause, I think it's still at the end of our membership agreement, which says, if I decide to leave the church, I will go to the elders and tell them I'm leaving, which the elders really appreciate when you do that. But I can't tell you, when I was pastor, all the people that said they would do that, and then one day just disappeared. No word to anybody. So, you know, God sees that. God knows you made that commitment. And God knows that you walked away from that commitment because you feared man. Don't do that. You're going to probably do that. God's going to love you anyway. But I'm saying, and we'll come to it in a minute, that, that you need a Savior, don't you? Because if you don't have a Savior, you're screwed. <laughs> to put it in earthly language, street language. Huh? That's what this text is all about. This text is all about one thing. We are in desperate need. And fifthly, he does not put out his money at interest. Psalm 15 is not telling us that interest is inherently bad. When David wrote this psalm, there were no banks. No commercial loans existed. There was no such thing as capitalism as we think of it today. The only kind of loans were charitable loans. You loaned the poor money so they could eat or so that they could buy a cloak to wear. And so to charge interest when you're loaning money to the poor was a, a terrible show of greed and lack of compassion. And that's why this text says he loans his money out at interest. He loans his money, but not at interest. And sixthly and lastly, he does not take a bribe against the innocent. Have you seen that movie, A Man for All Seasons? Was it really? No, nobody? Okay. <laughs> hey, 30 years ago I saw it, so that's probably why you haven't seen it. It's about Sir Thomas More, who was Lord High Chancellor under Henry VIII in England. And he was eventually put to death by uh, Henry VIII because he wouldn't basically de deny Christ. He was a Roman Catholic, but he wouldn't deny Christ. But there's a scene in the movie 
I've never forgotten it. He's the, the judge of the nation. And he's going up into the courtroom, and this woman stops him and hands him a great big silver vase about this big. It's a bribe. And he, he takes it and gives it back to the woman and says, I, I cannot take anything. I cannot take anything from the public because it will be construed as a bribe. He does not take a bribe against the innocent, see? No perversion of justice. In other words, you don't do the wrong thing just because it's profitable. In most countries today, bribes run the government. You're driving through Mexico, the police pull you over, and you just give the cop a $100 bill, an American, which is a big deal, and there's no ticket. That's, the, that's what I'm talking about. Most countries today are run by bribes. In the United States, we're not there yet. Hopefully, we'll never get there, but I'm concerned. Think about Paul in prison under Festus and Felix in Acts. And the text tells us they knew that Paul came from a wealthy family, so the governors kept him in prison, hoping that Paul would give them money to release himself from prison. They're looking for a bribe, in other words. The Bible's telling us all forms of bribery are off the table. So, who is the man to whom God looks? Who is the man or woman who will enter God's, can enter God's tent? He who walks blamelessly and does what is right, who speaks the truth in his heart, out of his, his heart is pure, and out of that heart comes only speech that's edifying and upbuilding. He despises the vile person and honors those who fear the Lord. He hates what God hates and loves what God loves. He swears to his own hurt and does not change. He keeps his vows, and lastly, he does not take a bribe against the innocent. So there's only one person who's ever met these qualifications, and that's the Savior that we have, Jesus Christ. And that brings us to our final point, two applications. The first is we need a Savior, and the second one is holiness is not optional. Brothers and sisters, Psalm 24 and John read the second half of it this morning to just open our meeting. It starts out by asking the same question, and then it ends by describing the King of Glory, who is the only one who can ascend the hill of the Lord and receive God's favor and enter into God's presence on his own merits. That's our Savior, Jesus Christ. We need a Savior. The point of Psalm 15 is that we are morally bankrupt. None of us can enter. In our, own virtue, with our, in our own virtues, in our own, uh, in our own human righteousness. Again, in, in uh, Romans chapter 3, and I think in Psalm 14, it says, none are righteous, no, not one. That's a big word to describe the, what we have to have to enter God's presence, righteousness. It's a summary word. None of us have it. And the point of Psalm 15 is, we don't have it, and we need it. Where are we going to get it? And God so loved the world that he sent a savior to the world who was sinless and who fulfilled the requirements of Psalm 15 and Psalm 24 and Isaiah 30, 30, 33 perfectly. He did all these things, never failed. And so when we put our faith in him, our faith unites us with him and his righteousness or his virtues become ours. And based on Christ's righteousness, we are now counted by God as worthy to enter. No other reason. No other way. All the virtues in the world that you could stack up will never make you worthy. No matter how hard you try, you can never measure up performance-based 
acceptance, PBA, will not get you into God's tent, into God's holy place. It will never make you acceptable to God. The only thing that will make you acceptable to God is that you humble yourself and say, God, I am bankrupt. Lord, I cannot get the job done. Lord, I will never be good enough. I need a Savior. How many of you have prayed that way? Good. If you're new here today and you're not a Christian and this is all new to you, this is what it means for you to become a believer, a Christian. It's a humbling. The only faith that saves is a humbling faith. It's a faith that says, I'm needy, I'm needy, I'm needy. I'm thinking of the, of the movie with the goldfish bowl around his neck. What's that movie? What about Bob? I'm needy, I'm needy, okay? That's us. We're like Bob and what about Bob? Have you seen that movie? He's a nutcase and he's needy. But that's how God sees us. We got a goldfish bowl around our neck on a string and we're walking around saying, I'm needy, I'm needy, I'm needy. The gospel is incredibly humbling. The gospel reduces us to reality. The gospel gives us a God that's nothing like people on the street out there think God is like. He's so much better than just a common street version of a big grandpa in a rocking chair with white hair dispensing goodies to people. It's not the way it works. He dispenses better goodies than that to us, but the conditions are humility, faith, and repentance, okay? Well, humility meaning I recognize that I'm needy. I recognize I can't get the job done. I need a savior. Faith, I believe God has given me a savior. I believe that God is infinitely good, and that's an aspect of his holiness. And because he's infinitely good, he's supplied a savior to me. And my job is to put my faith in that savior and then turn in repentance and seek to walk in holiness. And that's point number two. Holiness is not optional. Jesus died to restore the image and likeness of God in us. When Adam sinned, it was seriously defaced. It was still there in fragmentary form. And that's why God loves even unbelievers is because they bear God's image and likeness. But to be, but to have God's image and likeness restored in us means we have God's holiness restored in us. All those things that Psalm 15 is talking about. Christ does not save us because we are holy. He saves us to make us holy. Would you say that with me? He saves us to make us holy. Now, the good news is because of the gospel, there's no standard that our holiness has to meet. In other words, without the gospel, we would have to be 100% holy. We'd have to be perfect, pure, and blameless to get into heaven. And of course, we can't do that. Now that we have the gospel and God considers us that way, we still need to be holiness because we still need godliness. We still need obedience because that says I have real faith, saving faith. Because saving faith always comes, brings repentance with it. If I don't have a desire to turn away from sin and turn towards God, if I do not have implanted in me now an increasing distaste or hatred for sin and ungodliness, and an increasing love for all the things that God values, that's growing in me, in other words, it's a sign that I've never been born again. Because new birth is a change of nature. When I receive new birth from God, I receive a share of the divine nature. 
And what is the divine nature like? It hates sin and it loves holiness. And so if that's not working in me, no matter how many Sundays I come to church, no matter how many times I go forward at the crusade and raise my hand, no matter how many times I hang out with Christian people, I'm not a Christian. Christianity is a radical transformation of nature which leads us to a change of life, to a holy way of life. I'm going to read from three of the Beatitudes, Matthew 5, 6, 5, 7, and 5, 8. Look at those. These are just three of the nine Beatitudes. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Jesus is describing the person who's been born again. They hunger and thirst for righteousness. Now, that hunger and thirst is at different degrees than all of us here in this room this morning. Some of us, it's barely there. Some of us, it's very strong and overpowering. It's your job as a Christian to feed that desire and make it stronger. So, salvation is monergistic. That means only God acts. When I'm born again, it's God that gives me new birth, and I respond with faith and repentance. But sanctification is synergistic. It's me cooperating with the Holy Spirit now that I've been born again. And so it's my job, my duty, to take hold of the means of grace, prayer, Bible study, church attendance, home group attendance, fasting. <laughs> I don't like to fast, but I'm including that because that's part of the deal. Okay? To inflame those desires for holiness and godliness. And the more I inflame those and build those up, the, the more I want to be like God, okay? If there's no desire to do that, I'm not a Christian. Second beatitude, blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. The opposite is true, if the unmerciful will not receive mercy. And lastly, number eight, or excuse me, Matthew chapter five, verse eight, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Whoa, that's New Testament. How'd that get in there? That sounds like works righteousness to me. Jonathan Edwards has a whole sermon on this verse. It would behoove you to read it. It's not works righteousness. What that text is telling us is that if you've been born again, you will become pure of heart. And if you're not becoming pure of heart, you're not born again. And James chapter 4 tells us to purify our hearts. How do we purify our hearts? Repentance, daily repentance. Not just from some sins, but from all known sin. Because to be a Christian means we're members of a kingdom. We enter the kingdom of God. And when we enter the kingdom of God, what we do is we make Christ king over us, Lord over us. We say, God, I'm, no, I'm not going to run my life anymore. I'm going to have you run my life, Lord. I'm going to have you tell me what to do. Because I'm a citizen of your kingdom, and you are the Lord and Savior. You're my king now. You're my authority, okay? And so... I'm seeking to do that. Now, in any room like this, there'll be people who are clinging to some sins. Yeah, I've repented of 90% of my sins, but there's a few things I'm just not ready to give up to God yet. So then the question is, are you born again? Is Christ king of your life? Yes, we're saved by faith alone. But this is where saving faith brings us. And if your faith has not brought you here, the question is very simple. Are you really one of God's? 
Do you really belong to the Lord? Now, I hope there's nobody in this room like that, but there probably is. So I'm going to pray that God will bring you under conviction this morning, and he'll say, God, there's things I need to give up. God, I don't want to give them up, but God, help me. I know I need to give them up, and I want to want to give them up. God, would you help me? I want to repent, Lord. I need your help. You know something? God's going to hear that prayer. But what's not acceptable is, God, I'm saved by faith alone. I'm going to presume upon that grace and that, and that you're giving me and that love that you're giving me, and I'm just going to kind of give you the spiritual finger or do my own thing with my life as much as I want. Now, that's kind of a crude way to say it. I'm sorry, but that's how God sees it. And I'm going to reserve this portion of my life to myself over here. Nobody knows I'm reserving this portion of my life to myself over here but me and you. Well, God knows that. So God is challenging you this morning, if that's you, to get right with God. And why is that? Because of Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14. Hebrews 12, 14. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. So are we saved by faith alone? Yep. We're saved by faith alone. But it's the pure in heart to see God. It's the holy people that are growing in holiness that someday are going to see God. So I'm, I'm challenging you this morning. I, on one hand, I want to encourage you. I want to take the pressure off and say to you, you don't have to be perfect. You can be very imperfect to be a Christian. Thank goodness, because if that wasn't the case, I'd be in big trouble. I am very imperfect. So I make mistakes all the time. I say things I shouldn't have said. I don't think, say things I should say sometimes. I've screwed up evangelistic opportunities so badly sometimes I can't even describe it to you. I've said things to my wife I shouldn't say and to my kids. I've done things I shouldn't do. I've been lazy when I should be diligent. I've been sloppy when I should be not sloppy. I should be uh, focused, laser focused. I'm just like you. The good news is I have a gospel. I have grace. I can make mistakes. It's okay. But the one thing that's not okay is for me to walk in deliberate unrepentance. That's what I'm saying. If you walk in faith, you believe in the gospel, and you say, God, my life is yours. Lord, whatever you want from me, you can have. Lord, I give it all to you, Lord. God, I, there are things that I know I need to give up. I want to give them up. I don't know how to give them up. God, help me give them up. If I need help, help me. That's acceptable to God. But what's not acceptable to God is for you just to say, it's okay, God is gracious. I can get away with this. That's presuming upon God's grace. That will bring God's judgment. Okay, so know yourself. Who are you this morning? Are you somebody that needs to repent? Maybe you're somebody that's, that has repented all you know and you live in constant guilt. Then the gospel is for you. The gospel is for you. And what makes you guilty is you feel you need to perform to get God to love you. You need to be perfect to get God to love you. You don't need to be perfect. All you need to do is turn to God in faith and repentance. And God knows all your imperfections. They're all covered by the blood of Christ. You've been united with Christ by faith. God sees you as possessing his son's perfections, and it's okay with him. 
And maybe on the other hand, you're somebody that believes the gospel really well. You're not struggling with guilt. Your problem is you're presuming upon God's grace. Then my exhortation to you this morning is get serious with God. Get serious with the Lord. Because if you presume upon God's grace, someday you're going to wake up and it's going to be disasterville spiritually. Let's close with prayer. Let's ask for God to help us.